Okay, in the last session, we, as I said, we are going to do a series of 10 talks of half an hour each, covering almost everything in Hinduism in its basic fashion, rather than in very kind of elaborate manner. In the last session, we covered the key word. The word Hindu is just a derivation of the name of a river, Sindhu. So it's really a mispronunciation of the name of a river. But the word that we use to define what is called as our religion, it's not actually religion even, is Dharma. Dharma is quite different from the word religion. Religion is trying to associate this ultimate reality called God with humanity. Dharma is simply saying making sense of the human condition and resolving ourselves, sorting ourselves out. Now this is a far more broader vision. You simply say who the heck we are, what are we doing here, how do we sort ourselves, things are so, not as easy as we thought. How do we sort ourselves out? This is the enterprise of Dharma. Coming to terms with the laws that work in this world that we see around us, including the laws that operate within us, our emotions and drives. Coming to terms with them, harnessing them for our betterment, is the enterprise Dharma, shared by the four Indian religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism. So far, in this definition, God doesn't even appear. Now, if you mention this particular enterprise to any atheist, or somebody who is a secular person, I don't believe in religion or God, he will relate to it immediately. He said, exactly this is what I am on about. So it is a very, very rational approach to, to, you know, to the human condition. So this, was the, this is what we talked about last time. Today we go forward. What are the key beliefs that define a Hindu? I'm going to talk about the key features about Hinduism. You see, now, as I said, the idea of dharma is to make sense of the world that we live in. So what did we observe? You see, this is the same observation that, in, that you see in science. We see certain patterns in nature, and we try to come to terms regarding this pattern by trying to say, how can we explain these patterns? There are certain regularities, like the, the, the morning, the sun comes up. Whatever pattern that we observe, we try and make sense of this particular pattern and get our mind around it. This is the idea. So our observations since very ancient time was to look at nature and make sense of the world that we live in. And the first thing we discovered is the same thing that the scientists are talking about. We discovered that everything around us, all objects and events, are strongly intertwined or interconnected by theory of cause and effect. When certain things combine together, certain consequences follow. This is the enterprise of physical science, hard sciences. When you have, when you have glasses, you drop them, they fall. It's called gravitation. Anything you hold, you let go, it falls. So you observe this pattern and you call it gravitation, cause and effect. I let it go, it drops. So the cause and effect is central in every science. This is the, 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 the science is nothing but exploring causality, cause and effect. And the Hindus discovered this right at the start. There's nothing special. We simply say things, objects and events are interconnected, intertwined. They follow in a particular, con, in a particular sequence. Even the, in, the, in the primate kingdom, even the animals know. You know, there are some primates who will know how to use a club to break a nut and eat. They know that they break it, they can eat it. The cause and effect. So it is centrally for all living king in, for, in the living kingdom, but in humanity it becomes much more, much more kind of focused. So we say this is called the law of cause and effect. The term we use in Hinduism to define this particular feature that we observe around us is law of karma. Karma means action. Any activity you set in motion has a, if you like, a habit of producing certain consequences. What we don't know. But there is a linkage, cause and effect. And this is called the law of, law of karma. Karma simply means action. So the law of action and its consequences is the law of, law of karma. Now why is this so important? 
Because this is how you come. As I said, we want to make sense of the world that we live in. So if you know the certain things combine together and produce certain results, then we can use that knowledge to kind of dictate or kind of get a handle on our own lives. And that is how we started. The law of karma is central in Hindu tradition. But then you see it becomes, if you like, oversimplified. And this creates problem. Let me show you. What we are saying is the law of karma operates on individual terms as well. So if you are, if you are an individual who is very focused, who studies very hard at, the, at college, at school, you produce wonderful result and you achieve your awards and you go to top universities, get top jobs. So you see the law of cause and effect on personal terms. It's not only for objects that you find law of causality, it also operates for human beings, for individuals. Certain activities produce certain beneficial results and certain activities may produce non-beneficial results. We begin to learn it ourselves. Law of cause and effect. Now when you oversimplify it, it creates problem. Because if you think that, oh, I did good things, so good things should follow. Good things should happen to me. You know, it doesn't happen in that way. Because the law of cause and effect is very complex. Not only what you set into motion is going to catch up with you. A lot of other things gang up which are beyond your control and perhaps push you in the corner. So when you see people being killed in tsunami, you can't say, oh, they deserve it, they must have done something bad. Just a lot of things combined together, geographical reasons which kind of push them in the corner and, and create this kind of devastation. So you mustn't blame them. So be careful. Law of cause, cause and effect should not be oversimplified. Your particular contribution in what happens to you is there. But a lot of other things gang up as well and produce certain consequences. This is one part of the law of karma that Hindus have forgotten. It is a much more complex phenomenon. It's not oversimplistic. The other aspect of law of cause and effect, law of karma, is as follows. It's not only what you set into motion that has got a habit of catching up with you. What you fail to do, suppose you see a situation in front of your eyes and you fail to in fact, you know, interact, that too can have consequences for you. You see somebody in, in, in distress and you decide not to help and maybe this will backfire on you in the, in the days to come. So when you see an issue in front of your eyes, you must, the fact that you turn your back itself is bad law of karma. That means you're not really understood the law of karma in its full majesty. What you do will catch up. What you fail to do will also catch up. And the kind of silly example I give you, suppose a little, there's a drip of water in your attic, in your, in, your, in your house, and you say, well, it's not that serious. Let me ignore it and go to Florida for my winter holiday. And there's a strong kind of very cold weather. And when you come back, there's a bus pipe and your house has turned into a swimming pool. And so you are, who is to blame? You, because you turn your back on a problem that you see in front of your eyes. So law of cause and effect has two if you like two arguments, what you set into motion, what you fail to do is going to catch up with you. Now, why am I making a big fuss about this? Because most Hindus in India today, or worldwide, give very oversimplistic interpretation to the law of karma. So when things go bad for somebody, they say, oh, I deserve it, I must have done something bad. It's not your fault. A lot of other things gang up and interact with you. They are, nothing, they are completely out of your control, so don't blame yourself. So don't, so don't become indifferent to your own suffering or become a fatalist in the guise of following the law of karma. Don't be indifferent. That's the first part. The second part of the law of karma says you must not be indifferent to the suffering of others. And this is the problem with India. If you see a big difference between the haves and have-nots, a lot of people, a lot of money, a lot of people, no money. And you say, well, this is not right. Something is wrong. Say, oh, no, no, Mr. Lakhani, that is perfectly all right. These people must have done some bad things so they are suffering and we have done some good things so we are enjoying. Now, what have they done? They have forgotten the second part of the equation of the law of karma. If you see an issue in front of your eyes that you can resolve, do so. 
and they turn their back and become indifferent to the suffering of others. So you can become indifferent to your own suffering and become fatalist, no good. You can become indifferent to the suffering of people around you saying they deserve it and that too is wrong. So this is if you like the mature law of karma can resolve the issue while a very oversimplistic, if you like, vision of law of karma can be highly damaging for a nation and this is very hard. At the moment I'm telling you one of the biggest problems in modern India is the difference between heaven and heaven is not being resolved in the guise of, oh, it's law of karma. They deserve to be to starve. Nobody deserves to starve. This, are, this is why the law of karma has to be re-explored, re-examined and seen in its totality. But the law of karma is such a central feature of Hinduism. It is a central feature of every science. That's what science does. Just explores law of cause and effect. So it's in, very much in tune with science. And yet, we have forgotten the complexity of this law and oversimplified it and turned it into a fatalistic religion. It is wrong. So this is one of the most important beliefs of the Hindus, law of karma. Things have a habit of catching up with you. <clears throat> the second thing, the second key beliefs in the Hindu tradition is this idea of cycles. You may be surprised. The Hindu philosophy says that we do not believe in linear time. means time is beginning infinite time, you know, years ago, time started, it goes on for infinite. So not a linear time. In Western thinking, theology, time is linear, without beginning, without end, goes on and on in both directions. In fact, Newtonian physics was like that, linear time. Space and time are infinite on both sides. No beginning, no end, just goes on either side. And then suddenly we discover relativity and Einstein and he's blown that away idea completely. You don't have linear time, you have cyclic time. Time itself is a beginning. And this is called the Big Bang Theory, the modern cosmology. Time itself is cyclic, it's not linear, it doesn't go from in a straight line from minus infinity to plus infinity like you do in your graph paper. It is cyclic. Time is a beginning and time comes to an end. You say, oh, I never heard of that. That is what is called the Big Bang Theory. And Hindus believe in cyclic time. They say there is a creation and this end of creation. Time itself begins and time disappears and time reappears. This is called a very important aspect, belief in cycles of creation and destruction. This are called, the Sanskrit term is kalpa. And this is a central feature. Again, you can see when you talk to a modern cosmologist, modern physicist, he will relate to that extremely well. There's another aspect to the cycles. Hindus say our our journey has started with as as the biologists say as a single cell being and we've been evolving over billions of years, over three billion years in fact, according to modern science. The Hindus agree with this idea of evolution. He says the physical body we possess has been fashioned by natural selection and as Darwin suggests, and becomes this complex over time. But the thing that occupies this body, the physical frame, is transmitted from one life to another life through the process called reincarnation. Again, the idea of reincarnation is central to the four dharmic traditions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism and Sikhism. The Buddhists use a slightly different term for, te for technical reasons. They call it rebirth. But the concept is the same, reincarnation. The thing that lives in this body, when the body can becomes becomes old, diseased, it, we lose, if you like, we give up this body and we are reincarnated, born into another body. And this is central feature. Half the world population believe in reincarnation. Half the world population. In fact, when I do some surveys at some of the English schools, I would say nearly half the 
youngsters from other religions or no religion also believe in reincarnation. It seems to be an endearing idea that you don't just suddenly get switched off. The thing that you set into motion, your intellect, your, your, your emotions, your character has a habit of, has a good, if you like, a momentum of its own and will try and get re, find re-expression in another body. This is the theory of reincarnation. You may feel that perhaps it's too floaty. doesn't seem, how, I don't remember my past life. How can I believe in stuff like that? Well, you should do some research on Google. We've got a special website that we have set up on reincarnation rebirth. And you'll find lots of video clips of youngsters recalling their past life, which can be checked out and which comes out true. And research, serious research was done by Professor Ian Stevenson in University of Virginia, where he studied life cases of 3,000 or so youngsters, three-year-old children, who recall their past life with vivid detail. And in almost all the cases where he could substantiate it, he investigated it, it fits. So Professor Stevenson simply says this, I'm not here to prove reincarnation, I'm simply saying the way these two lives are linked is so incredible. How can this youngster, three-year-old, remember a life lived 50, 100 years ago, and I check it, it fits. How does this information transmit? And he says, this, these are lovely things, I'm not here to prove reincarnation, I'm simply saying the only theory that fits this particular phenomena is the reincarnation of the Hindus. So it's not a minor artificial thing. And if you go on our website or just go Google reincarnation, you'll find lots of little children. This youngster called James, who recently remembers himself as a fighter pilot who was shot down over Japan, the very well-documented series. He's been recalling tremendous information about his past life as a fighter pilot. He knows exactly how to f- fly a plane, a little chap, how to s- send off bombs. And this is a true story, and it's, it's recorded by ABC, NBC, etc. So you can do, do some research. So this is not a floaty idea. But why is reincarnation such an important feature in the world that we live in? Let me tell you why reincarnation has to be revisited. Before I do that, the Western civilization always believed in reincarnation. You may be very surprised. Almost every Greek philosopher, whether Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, uh, Pythagoras, they all believed in reincarnation. Pythagoras even recalled what, who, what was his past life. So it was already in the Western culture, but for whatever reason, Christianity decided not to follow this idea of reincarnation and come with this idea of two life scenario, this one and the next everlasting one in heaven or hell. I think it's a carrot and stick argument they were trying to use to keep their devotees in line. But reincarnation was invisible in the Western world. Now I'm telling you it will be revisited in this, this century. It cannot be avoided. I'll tell you why. With reincarnation, the good thing is this. It says that the character you develop in one life comes with you in your next life. So what you set into motion, suppose you have a discipline, that character stays between your next life and you get the benefit of your discipline approach to life. So you get the benefit or you reap the rewards of what you set into motion this life by by becoming ingrained in you and re-exploring it in the next life. So it says measured rewards for measured work you put in. So if you put in so much work for being disciplined and that much reward you will get in your next life. Measured risk for measured rewards. This is a very interesting thing. Now with the Abrahamic tradition, this is a big problem because they give you an infinitely skewed risk-reward ratio saying that if you do a little bit good here, you end up in heaven, eternal heaven, where you live for happily ever after. If you do this much bad, finite bad, you get infinite damnation, cast into hell forever. Now this infinitely skewed risk-reward ratio produces fanatics, Haven't you seen? 
The reason why people kill or be, want to be want to kill others or kill themselves is because of this infinitely skewed risk reward ratio. Because I told you, die in the name of religion, you go to heaven and have infinite rewards there. So they're prepared to kill themselves or kill others. They say life is it's just a tiddly thing, so it doesn't matter. They're going to end up in heaven. So it produces produces fanatics, and the only way you can stop these fanatics from blowing themselves up and others is revisiting reincarnation. Measure risk, measure reward. No heaven waiting for you. And yet, you might say, but do, do the Hindus have no heaven or hell? The answer is this. This is what we are suggesting. And it has been well explored by Professor Stevenson, not me. He said, between lives, because he sees, explores these lives, two lives. Sometimes the, the child will talk about a situation where before he's reborn, he kind of spent time in a stupor, like a dreamlike state, which appeared almost very pleasant, heavenly, or quite hellish, hard, because of his character. But he stays there only for a short period. Sometimes maybe 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. And that stupor, that dreamlike state, is the, if you like, temporary resting place between two lives. So before you are reincarnated, you might end up there and spend a short time there or long time there, depending on your character. It's very short term. There's no infinite risk or infinite heaven or hell in Hindu tradition or in the Indic traditions. You always come back. You're reincarnated. Now, the reason why reincarnation is important and this idea of cycles of life and death is important is this. It tells you the following. It says, take great care in making, if you make, molding your character. Because if in this life you put in a lot of effort and discipline to mold your character, then that is the only thing that's going to come with you in your next life. So the character you mold for yourself is the only asset you possess. Suppose you have property, possession, family, friends, you're going to leave everything behind. But the character you develop in one life is the only thing you got for, for sure that will resurface in your next life. So they are saying you develop a very, feel like a steady, steady, very disciplined character that will come with you, that will stay with you. So it's a very interesting way because if you like gives you a handle on how to lead your life, saying even if you don't get full benefit, suppose you're a musician and you're working hard and mastered one particular musical instrument and suppose for some accident you died at the age of 20 or something. This law of reincarnation, don't worry. The discipline you put in stays with you. As soon as you are reborn, you'll be looking for the musical <coughs> instrument. you become a child prodigy. Start playing instruments at a very young age. It is something that, again, if you like, you get the benefit of what you set into motion in your past life. Reincarnation also explains a lot of other issues modern, modern psychologists struggle with. When you have some, some human beings struggling with you know, psychotic problems, irrational fears, you know, phobias. The modern psychology is where something must happen in his childhood or something. It's not true. It's not good enough. The solution comes from reincarnation. Suppose I'm frightened of heights. I am a frightened of heights. And I say, why? Because I, so when you were a child, you fell down. I never fell down. I don't remember. Why am I frightened of heights? Then I think about it. It is quite, quite possible that in one of my previous lives, I fell off a great height and died. So that impression has stayed in the back in my unconscious, become part of my character. So as soon as I see height, I go, I start to shudder. For no reason, I start to feel, I'm fearful. The phobia. If I can come to terms with that, that this is, if you like, something that has been carried forward from my previous life, I can easily handle it. We say, oh, no, no, when you were a child, you fell down from a stool, and that's why you're frightened. That's, that sounds nonsense. So serious psychological issues can be better explained through reincarnation. Phobias can be explained through reincarnation. 
child prodigies can be explained through reincarnation. The reason why they're prodigies is because they've already put in the discipline in many of their previous lives. That's why they're master in mathematics, master in music, because they've already learned those techniques. The hard work has been already put in over not one, maybe many lifetimes. So they already mastered it. And from a very young age, they exhibit their speciality. So it is, if you like, reincarnation is a great deal going for it in this century. It explains psychological issues. It takes away this issue of fanatic behavior in the name of religion. So it is a matter of time, and it cannot be avoided. Reincarnation will have to be reinvestigated in this century. It cannot be avoided. Otherwise, people keep blowing each other up in the name of religion. If you say there's no eternal, you know, heaven or hell waiting for you, they'll think twice. See why it's so essential to reintroduce reincarnation in the, West, in the Western world. It will come. So I've just given you some ideas about the key features of Hinduism, belief in cycles, cycle of creation and destruction, cycle of rebirth. This is called, the word, the Sanskrit term for cycle of rebirth or reincarnation is samsar existence that continues to carry forward even when one life ends, samsar. But then you might say, Mr. Lakhani, suppose you have to be born again and again and again. That too will be like a prison. Even though we love to be reborn, we love to eat that chocolate cake and all that, it will become a prison, surely. It is true. So reincarnation, fortunately, thankfully, doesn't go on forever and ever. Otherwise, it's still a hell. It's just kind of, you know, tied up forever and ever. That can't be good. So there is, if you like, end of reincarnation. And this is not kind of you getting snuffed out, like a candle being blown out. Reincarnation comes to a halt with a process called moksha. Moksha is a central feature of Hindu religion. comes from the two Sanskrit terms, moha, kshaya, end of delusion. So it's an end of delusion? What's that? Didn't I say the Hindu idea of the Hindu enterprise is to make sense of the human condition? He says, when you really investigate what is your true nature, what is the true nature of this creation, this world around you, a stage will come when you'll be able to, if you not just believe in, but actually experience what is your true nature, who you truly are. And when you discover your true nature, it's not this body or mind that is reincarnating, but something dramatically different, very special. And the word is spirit. When you discover that you are essentially spirit and not the body and the mind, when you discover, not just believe in it or you know read books about it, but actually experience it, then your reincarnation stops because now you know you are the spirit. You don't feel any desires to be reborn. So desires drop off. You don't have to fight off desires. They drop off. And this is not, if you like, getting snuffed out. But re, if you like, re-examining or re-exploring you know, our true nature as a spirit. And the word that we use, as you'll discover, is Atman. Your nature is truly not what you think it is. It is something dramatically different from the body and the mind that you occupy. You are the spirit. And this is the discovery that will stop the process of reincarnation. It's called moksha, end of delusion that you are the body and the mind. So this is the whole story of reincarnation and the word samsar and moksha and law of karma. These are central beliefs of the Hindus. Now I'm going to introduce to you next week in greater detail one of the important features of Hinduism, which is again going to become very visible in the days to come. It is this, this idea that there is a God in heaven and you have to try and find him, etc., are secondary ideas. The primary ideas of Hinduism is rediscovering your essential nature. What is your essential nature? There's something very interesting. 
that you find in the Greek thinking as well as Hindu thinking. Before you make sense of the world around you, why don't you sort yourself out? Who the heck are you? What is your essential credential? What are your credentials? What is your capacity? What is your true nature? In the journey of trying to find out what is our essential nature, what is our true nature, is something that we really marvel at. Whole of Buddhism is nothing but this exploration. Whole of Buddhist religion, there's no search for God. It's trying to sort yourself out. And this rediscovering our essential nature as a spirit is a key feature of Hinduism that again is a central belief of the Hindus, which again will be revisited in this particular century without any doubt. Okay, and just one more thing I must say. One of the features about Hinduism is this very interesting idea that not only we are special, something very special is manifesting itself through this body and mind, which are, because Richard Dawkins says the only reason why you are special, Mr. Lakhani, is because you are accidents of evolution that has become produces complex form. There's nothing more to you. Just accidents of evolution that produces complex being. There's nothing else. This is called materialistic humanism. The Hindus say, no, no, there's something more to us than matter. <coughs> the thing that is actually somehow manipulating matter to become this complex and express itself through these eyes is something that doesn't come out of matter. It is something that is actually manu you know, maneuvering, manipulating matter rather than coming out of matter. This is called spiritual humanism. It gives highest dignity to all living things, saying there's something very special in all living things. And the clearest vision of this idea, clearest vision of spirit, is humanity. Seeing and serving God in humanity, not in the heaven, not in the temple, is an essential aspect of Hindu philosophy. And again, this is a feature that will become visible in the days to come in this society. When I do the assembly later on, you will see this will be my topic. You see what I do to the Eton assembly here. They become, they become putty. They've never heard this stuff like this. Spiritual humanism is again a feature of Hinduism that will again be revisited or become visible in the Western world in this century. Thank you, my friends.